0: In the 60s and into the 70s, there was an explosion in the British pop music business as the Beatles broke up and bands such as the Rolling Stones, The Who, Led Zeppelin and many others rose to prominence. It was the start of a cultural revolution that continued over the next few decades. Live music audiences got more demanding and wanted to see concerts that were dramatic and spectacular. This is the story of how, as the music industry evolved, artists and bands took to the road to tour the UK, Europe and America to satisfy those demands, as told by some of the people that made it happen. The worlds of theatre and television collided, and in the vanguard was a small group of people in a London company that helped pioneer rock and roll lighting and visual production. Welcome to your very own Backstage Pass. (laughs)
1: Like any other business, the success of ESP Lighting would be dependent on the people the company employed. Let's hear from one of those who we heard from in an earlier episode. Here's Jeremy Tom.
2: I think in those days there weren't very many titles and kind of everybody did everything. I had come from uh, theatre projects and I'd done some time at the Opera House um, and I knew how to run a board. So I did a certain amount of, you know, running boards, running shows, and sometimes designs that I'd done, sometimes other people's designs. Certainly being designer and board operator didn't make any difference to the amount of work you did loading in, loading out, driving trucks, and doing everything. It was definitely a team exercise. The crews themselves were basically everybody did everything as much as possible. I seem to recall it as being a fairly happy period of time. Yeah, I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed being on the road. It was completely different to everything, anything I'd done before. You know, driving around Europe in trucks, which was a, that was a new thing to me. The extreme lack of sleep during the whole process. It was new and different. It was great. The curtain goes up at 7 o'clock. There might not have been a curtain, but certainly the, the whole concept of the show must go on. And, you know, you had to do as much as you possibly could to make it happen, and there was... No such thing as, oh, it's lunchtime now. If stuff needed to be done and then it needed to happen. I think the whole thing of it being a team exercise and everybody just pitched in was really what, that's what kept everybody else moving, was, you know, the team moving forward. The start of my fundamental apprenticeship into doing what I'm doing now. And I'm, I mean, I was at ESP for two years, three years maybe. It was a fairly short period of time. Met some great people there and, you know, contacts that have continued over the years. But because I had studied a bit of engineering whilst I was at Theatre Projects, I then went from there into the staging business. Whilst it was still in the music business, it was a slightly different part of it. But certainly the time doing lights at ESP and, and learning what I'd learned about the business and how the business works and, and then... How to put shows together was really the beginning
1: of the learning curve which continues to this day. Another person who had a background in the theatre was Marshall Bissett. A chance meeting in a South London pub led him to ESP which was almost next door to where he was working in 1975.
3: I was still working for the Young Vic and I was not quite ready to quit my uh, day job yet. So the next um, assignment was to go out to Nebworth house to help on the Pink Floyd show because they were coming in from Canada. That was just an extraordinary experience. I mean, first of all, I'd never seen that amount of gear being unloaded from semis. I mean, I'd done theatre tours and I'd done... You know various uh you know rep theater tours northern dance theater that kind of thing but nothing prepared me for this avalanche of silver flight cases p- pouring out of the back of uh, arctic i guess i have to say or semi as i now know them we had just a, an extraordinary crew we our job was to prepare the the site for the floyd and, you know, run all the cable, make sure the generators were all okay. So during the show, I wound up, and I still have photographs of this, I wound up running an onstage follow spot on stage right, and the follow spot operator on stage left was none other than Patrick Woodruff, who went on to become, and still is, the Stones lighting designer and had a very, very distinguished career. That was just a great experience. A couple of weeks later, And I'm still pretty new to all the equipment at this point because the stuff ESP was using was so different from what I was used to in the theater. But I got thrown into this job at the Royal Albert Hall for a show called The Butterfly Ball. And I wound up putting in deep Purple's lighting rig, basically on my own with a helper. I'd never encountered genie towers. I'd never really hooked up dimmers. I I hadn't done anything. Um, I wound up doing all of that and running the lighting console. ESP Lighting was a great company, but it was not not big on employee training. It was definitely the sink or swim. I got on well there because um, when I finally met Brian Croft, uh, who'd been out on the Stones tour, he and I got on really well. We'd both started our career at Perth Rep Theatre, which is where I'm from. We had a lot in common, and I think in those days, uh, just having any kind of theatrical knowledge, you were in. I worked in the shop for quite a while, getting to know the gear in the amazing ESP Glass Hill Street building. Then I finally got put on a tour.
1: was with Blue Oyster Cult and we'll hear more from Marshall later. In the meantime, here's Frank Andrews who last time told us about working on the Rolling Stones Mirror tour.
4: My uh, work at ESP was over, well I was trying to think, but it's a maximum of five years really. All quite intense. I just used to seem to go from one tour to the next without any much of an interval really.
1: After the Osmonds who he says were a nice bunch, Frank then worked with Yes.
4: Which was a long, gruelling six-week tour around all these dirty theatres in England and cinemas. I don't know if ESP were completely contracted to that one because I was paid independently, as I remember. I think I was getting... I think it was £50 a week or something. (laughs) Anyway, the tour was so hard... That you'd, we'd all be on a bus on a coach and had to count the crew in the morning because people keep kept disappearing. <laughs> <laughs> they just they just with moonlight in the night. They just disappear. <laughs> I kind of took what was offered, I guess, to a large extent, and what fitted into the sort of what what when I was available. I did two queen tours. One was uh, all around in Scandinavia and one was around England. Freddie was always a bit aloof, but the rest of the band were very friendly. Um, Yeah, they were good. Uh, And obviously they weren't such stars at that time. So, yeah, they were were much more so uh,
1: quite sociable, really. Jimmy Barnett didn't get quite as close to Stephen Stills. Who had split from Crosby and Young to form Manassas? I was told to only ever
5: say nice things to him, like everything's okay, things, which I found a bit strange. And he's quite different to Neil Young, who I met and worked with about, about a year later. You know, when we started, he, he just did a few dates in the UK, and we, we we had a bus, a normal coach, to go up. I think it's Manchester good, and, we, and he got on the the coach in London. And the first thing he did was walk up and down the aisle, chatting to all of the crew asking new crew people their names, chatting them with them, you know. And he was delightful, humorous, courteous, and remembered our names.
1: Riley O'Connor had come to England from Canada on what he described as a hippie tour of Europe in 1974. He'd had some experience of the music business, working for a local band and as a stagehand in Montreal, before he went knocking on ESP's door.
6: Went up the steps on Glass Hill Road, opened a sliding door, and... Uh... There to my left is uh, John Brown and and Brian Croft sitting there facing each other. And, uh, and as soon as I walked in, I have to tell you, uh, the, the vibe felt the place. I'm going, yeah, I could work here. <laughs> but they looked at me like, you know, what the hell are you doing here? I, I just said, I'm Raleigh O'Connor, I'm looking for work. I've got some experience in electrics and uh, I hear you, you guys are the best people to work with. But from that point on, I just sort of like hung around, started sweeping the floors. And then finally they started asking me if I knew anything. and. Uh, after about three or four days the conversation turned to uh, what do you know uh, do you know anything about spotlights and i said sure i do i said what kind of spotlights super troopers i knew that they were north american i said of course i do they're north american and that's I, to be honest that's all i knew <laughs> and so they asked me if i would would like to be interested in going out on emerson like a palmer uh, spot looking after the spotlights and i said sure and then uh then was in fear of like you know i don't know the damn thing about these spotlights and then uh when they went off to the pub, I would go downstairs, uh, open up the manuals and just start reading and sort of looking at the lamps and trying to learn what I, what I could
1: uh, on the spot in the warehouse. Riley didn't actually do follow spots on that tour because things took a different turn.
6: John asked me if I knew anything about generators. And I said, absolutely I do. And actually I did, because I used to work on oil rigs. And he said, great, Emerson Lincoln Palmer need a generator truck to, and to go around to their uh, shows. There was this uh, company called Dawson Keith um, that we rented generators from. And uh, he said, if you go out and you pass their, their, their muster with them, uh, you got the gig. Um, so I, I knew I didn't have to fear it. So I went out to, uh, I think they were in Surrey, I went out to Dawson Keith. Guy had no problem with me operating the generator. The big test was actually driving the old Bedford truck that it sat on. We went for a spin on it. And I, to be honest, I had never driven in my life right hand drive. So we went out on the road with this guy. We go around a roundabout. He's gripping the, the side panel and the back seat. He thinking I'm going to flip the truck. We go through, we get back to the his shop and uh, he goes, I'll call your governor. And so I'm on the way back to London thinking there's no way they're going to let me drive this thing. I get back in there and, and uh, all John said, well, you, you got the gig. And all the guy said is that either you're going to die on the road or you'll come back
1: in one piece. So Riley joined the ESP Lighting payroll. Let's hear more from Frank Andrews about the work that he did.
4: It was hard work, and it was, you know, quite, although it was great times and all that, it was hard work. And um, obviously, back to back shows, um, if you had a, a few, it would be, you wouldn't get an awful lot of sleep, really. I was in the roof of, uh, I think it was Earl's Court with Jimmy Barnett. We were pulling these uh, hoists up into to the ceiling for hanging something i can't remember what it was even but uh it was like there was nothing no safety and we could have got it was like a hundred feet to the floor you know or more and these hoists were really heavy and i can remember them getting them about halfway up and it, like it, it was just getting so tiring you could hardly do it anymore and I am thinking, well, God, I'm going to go through this hole in a minute if I'm not careful, and I'll be dead.
1: <laughs> Marshall Bissett agrees, as he remembered his first tour with Blue Oyster Cult. The
3: crew was myself and Andy Collins, who was... A- kid from Croydon who looked permanently like he was 16 years old, but was the hardest worker in the, in the whole company. Never did drugs, never drank. He was the best guy to have on your crew. We did the load in, we focused, we humped follow spots up into the balcony. We did the load out, we packed a truck. And it was Andy and I. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever worked so hard in my life. Frank
1: Andrews had mentioned being up in the roof with Jimmy Barnett who agrees that it was tough going at times, and it wasn't just the physical hard work, as he explains.
5: There were two tours that I struggled with, I had a pretty bad time on. One was Led Zeppelin, so that was early 73. And I probably should have clocked, you know, John Brown called me while I was on, on a tour, and I can't remember who it was with, but he said, could I come off that tour and go and join the Led Zeppelin European tour, which was already underway probably three or four shows into the Zep tour. And there had been a personality issue with, with the band and, and the lighting designer who John had put on the tour. I don't, can't remember who it was. And the band now wanted him replaced. So I think he'd already decided to go home. And I, I sort of it quickly became apparent why. I think I joined them in Oslo. And I hadn't done any rehearsals, of course, and I wasn't hugely familiar with their music as I wasn't a massive fan. And the lighting rig that had been sent out was was not the best, because I think ESP was very busy at that time and, and hadn't really foreseen the growth and the amount of gigs that they had booked. So it was just sort of mayhem, really, from day one. It didn't get any better. I, I think the only ma- band member I ever really talked to was Robert Plant. I mean, Jimmy Page and John Bonham at that stage. I don't think they were living in the same universe as me. And the other one I didn't get on well with was Leonard Skinner. I think we were in Hamburg or somewhere, and, and the guitarist Gary Rossington arrived at the sound check with his, his right hand, his playing hand, bandaged up. And it turned out that Ronnie Van Zandt, who's the lead singer and the songwriter, had got into a drunken brawl in the hotel bar, smashed a bottle over someone's head, and Rossington intervened. Uh, Ronnie Van Zandt had used a broken piece of glass to cut Rossington's hand saying, you'll never play the guitar again. And I I gather this was not considered extreme by the rest of the band. And he played with his bandaged hand.
1: Simon Woodruff was another who had a theatre background and joined up in the early days of ESP Lighting.
7: I got a call to say somebody got ill on a Jethro tour, and could I go out tomorrow? And I said the immortal words, yes. And so I got my things together and I went to the airport and, you know, I got some money to get out there. And I flew to Rome and got a taxi into this enormous stadium in Rome. I can't remember what the name of It's an absolutely enormous stadium for a Jethro Tull show and turned up about couple of hours before the show and they sort of managed to get the thing up with just the two of them with Roy Lamb and Adrian Shirley and I turned up dressed in my sort of almost hippie gar I remember embarrassingly I was wearing these high-heeled shoes they must have looked at me askew but you know they'd heard that I came out of theatre so I have a little bit of respect there and I soon got rid of the high-heeled shoes and um, I've ridden a spotlight that night you know fantastic um a very clean stage actually with ian anderson standing there on one leg in the middle and these beams coming down and it was fantastic i was part of the crew incredible but in those days lighting was really an add-on and it was a bit of a pain in the neck for the sound people and the rest of them i must have met and talked to Ian Anderson he was an intelligent guy and he was almost like a sort of military dictator in about how everything should be it was it was an amazing amazing baptism by fire I thought it was going to be rock and roll and parties it was hard hard work it was long drives we were driving the trucks as well as putting everything in early in the morning, working through operating a spotlight during the show. Um, And in those days, I was pretty experienced. So I came back and suddenly I was in the pecking order um, in John Brown's office to get on the list for the next tour. And obviously John was out trying to drum up new business. Brian wasn't there at that time. He was a sort of mythical character who had gone off on the Rolling Stones tour and was much talked about, but not... (laughs) Not never. I, I didn't meet him till a year later, probably. Um, but trying to get on the list to get on the next tour, and the, the question you'd go into the office and help around getting things done and being seen and saying to John, "Oh, c-, you know, can I get on this next tour? And when you got actually put on the list, it was a bit like being at school and being put on the list to play in the cricket team, you know, and getting the job, you know, one, because fascinating, who are you going to go out with next? And secondly, um, you know, the money it was really good money because you came back from a tour and your 70 quid a week was in the bank or in your, you know, in, in cash. And that you you hadn't spent any money because everything was paid for. So it was a fantastic job. Nick Dornan also joined at about the same time.
1: And he remembers that after being on a crew to move Super Troopers out of the Rainbow Theatre in London, his first tour was with Deep Purple, at the time reputed mm-hmm. to be. One of the loudest bands in the world.
8: We did a show in Amsterdam where um, they, they double booked netball for most of the day. And we were so late getting in there to set up that there was a riot during the concert. And they destroyed all the stage gear. And uh, luckily, the lighting towers were left standing. But uh, follow spots were thrown thrown off their pedestals. And uh, we got, um, I think, five nights all expenses paid in the Amsterdam Hilton while they flew more gear out to us. So... What an experience.
1: Next, Nick worked on something quieter, a curved air tour, but before he set off.
5: Lovely.
8: Brian Croft asked me to uh, pick up some, a few hundred detonators for um, for the Warner Brothers music show that was uh, moving from uh, the UK to Europe and um, I did did the paperwork, delivered the uh, detonators and uh, parked my car at Bruno University where we were doing a show with um, Curved Air and then went off on tour and left my car there with the Receipt for the detonators on the inside, and lo and behold, the car was searched by police. And about um, a couple of weeks later, special armed um, special branch came round to to my house, and I wasn't there, of course, and um, and uh, my mother was uh, quite quite surprised, to put it mildly. And uh, they were really nice about it once they realised what it was, because the uh, IRA were very active in London at the time. Just to clarify,
1: the detonators were used to ignite on stage pyrotechnics and special effects for the Warner Brothers shows, which were staged at various UK and European venues. Let's go now from the ridiculous to a job with one of the greatest in one of the most iconic venues in London, Frank Sinatra at the Royal Albert Hall. But there was a problem because just before the show, the crew had no need for detonators as they wrongly connected the lighting control board and it blew
8: up. And we had about an hour before the show was due to start. So uh, I had a TR6 at the time and uh, I think Robin and I drove like madmen to Glass Hill Street to pick up a spare desk that we knew was there. And on the way back, the traffic was heavy And I was uh, actually driving on the wrong side of the road quite a lot of the time with my headlights flashing because we didn't want to end up with concrete boots. And um, when we got there, we loaded the desk in and plugged it in at random and got it right as the house lights were coming down. And they never knew a thing about it.
1: Robin Elias was the lighting board operator and designer on that Frank Sinatra, Albert Hall show, And he recalls that dash across London in Nick Dornan's TR6 sports car, back to the lighting company's warehouse.
8: I broke into ASP, um, which is something I may not have admitted to up till now, and I found a similar lighting desk open on the table being repaired. Anyway, I put the two halves together and we rushed back to the Albert Hall and I actually followed... I was cutting it so fine that I followed the orchestra onto the stage when I got there I put the desk on my desk plugged it all in set up the first presets put my headsets on and heard go pushed up the fader and it works fancy that Brian Croft always used to say I had a guardian angel and that if any if that was there's an illustration of that guardian angel keeping an army that was one of those moments.
1: so Robin, Nick and the rest of the crew survived their Frank Sinatra moment. In the next episode, we'll hear about another lighting control board blowing up, but this time it was an expensive operator error. The stones keep on rolling, some of the crew find themselves all at sea and a rave newspaper review doesn't go down very well. And there's much more besides. Backstage
0: Pass is a podcast miniseries produced by Chris Smith and Christian Swain, edited by Jerry Danielson, and is a joint production with Pantheon Podcasts. The home for music lovers. We look forward to having you back on our journey. Until then, remember to keep the lights on. <music>